Well, this Advent season, instead of sort of thinking about and dwelling on the traditional themes of peace, hope, joy, and love, we are kind of diving into these four alternate themes. Uh, last week, we talked about mystery and the, the infinite knowing that there is to God. And this week, I don't know if you could tell, but we're talking about waiting. And next week, we'll talk about redemption and, and the following week about incarnation. And really, one of the things that we're trying to do uh, through these videos and, and even Don's story is to demonstrate to you all that all of these concepts and ideas are not just abstract thoughts, but they're incarnate, they're made in the flesh, that we are people who aren't just thinking about waiting, but actually embody the act of waiting itself. And this morning, to, to, to sort of move us uh, into thinking about this in the biblical text, we're going to be reading what might be a familiar story, a rather lengthy one, of uh, the foretelling of John the Baptist's birth to his father, Zechariah. And so if you have a Bible, you're welcome to join me in opening to Luke chapter 1. It's a lengthy text, uh, but we're going to be reading verses 5 through 24 this morning. And so I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, amen, and her name was Elizabeth. <laughs> My name's Aaron, for those who may not know. <laughs> Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And both were getting on in years. It's a nice way of saying they were getting old. <laughs> if you want to describe older people, maybe that's a nicer way. They're getting on in years. But once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the, incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before the, him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so for I am an old man, I'm getting on in years, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, till the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When this 
time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you are with us. We're reminded, even as we anticipate your coming, that you are here. And we have gathered, because you are here, we've gathered to give you praise, and we have gathered to hear this morning a word from you. And so we ask, we beg, would you speak, O oh God, for your people are listening. Would you honor our longing? Would you bless our coming to hear you this morning? And somehow, by your grace, by your mercy, would you give us the capacity to hear what it is that you're wanting to say to us this morning. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray, amen. Well, several months ago, there was a, uh, a trend going through and making waves through social media where parents would set their children in front of a piece of candy or several pieces of candy and tell the child, I'm gonna walk away for a minute um, don't eat the candy. But when I come back, I'll, you can eat that piece of candy. And so you can watch these videos. You can find them on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok if you're down and young enough for that kind of thing. And <laughs> you can watch all of the ways that kids attempted to sort of fight their impulse to want to consume the thing that they were not supposed to consume. Some kids, these are some of my favorite ones, they would like pick it up and just sort of like touch it to feel the texture. Some kids would like lean in their heads to the piece of candy and just, just smell the chocolatey goodness just to know what it was that they were waiting for. There were still others who just refused to look at it because they knew if I look at that thing, I'm going to eat it. And so I'm going to turn to the side and just avoid eye contact with this piece of candy. Some kids, and they would, they would pick it up and they would just lick it. Like that's technically not eating it. So I think it's okay if I lick it. But one of my favorites, this is probably the, my, my all-time favorite, there's this little redhead girl, you could find her on YouTube, who as she's receiving the instruction not to eat the candy and her parent is starting to walk out of the room, she just grabs it and eats it. She's like, no, nope, I'm not going to do that game. I'm just going to consume it. You don't even have to leave the room. I'm going to do it right in front of you. And so Paige and I thought that this would be fun to do with our son, Levi, and thinking like, I think that he'll just sit there and sort of like patiently wait for us to return to get this piece of candy. And so... We, we dropped some M&Ms in a bowl and we told them, you know, we're going to go for a minute, don't eat it, and we'll come back. And once we do, you can eat the M&Ms. <laughs> and so we walked out of the room and unlike all of the reactions from the kids that we have seen on social media, he actually began to well up in tears and whimper going, mom, mom. And we just are silent and Paige starts crying in the other room. Like she's like, Aaron, this is so mean. Why are we doing this to him? You are so messed up. Oh. Well, the trend, if you're unaware, comes from this really well-known experiment that was done in Stanford called the Marshmallow Experiment. And researchers would do the same thing to kids, but they would do it with a marshmallow or a pretzel, depending on what the kid liked. And they'd place a single marshmallow or 
several pretzels on a plate, and they would walk away promising that they would give them double the amount that, that was on the plate if they waited until they returned to consume it. But they would go out for 10, 15 minutes at a time. And the experiment was done really to study delayed gratification, that ability to wait for one's reward. Waiting is probably one of my least favorite activities, which is a problem because waiting happens everywhere in life. <laughs> I didn't enjoy waiting this week when Lauren and I went to lunch after planning a bunch of stuff for church. I, I felt like I had to wait way too long for a burrito that I was supposed to eat the other day. I didn't enjoy waiting at the grocery store behind the three customers that had full carts while I just held one item that I wanted to quickly get through and was in a rush to check out and purchase. I didn't like waiting this week more than a day to get quiz results from a class that I was taking. It should be instantaneous, and I really do not like waiting to open and use the present that my mother-in-law shipped to us from Oklahoma that the delivery man put in my hand so I know exactly what it is, the page that I have to wait until Christmas to actually use it. <sighs> and every time I see it sitting there in our garage, I feel like it's taunting me like the marshmallow on the plate, like, sucker, you got three weeks still. <sighs> we don't like waiting in our society. Theme park ride lines, rush hour traffic, the years it takes before a child is potty trained, right? Like, can we just get past this phase of the diapers? We don't even like waiting for a pot of coffee to brew, so we have these instant Keurigs that just like instantly make water for us. Is there a worse room in society than the waiting room, right? It's literally just a room dedicated and building so that you can wait. I mean, what's the, the longest that you're willing to stay on hold on a phone call before you just hang up, right? Like, even though you need something, you're like, I am not going to wait. Have you ever had a package from Amazon come a day later than it was scheduled to come? It's the most frustrating thing in the world. It should not take more than 24 hours to obtain a product that I cannot buy in the city that was manufactured and shipped from overseas in the exact size, color that I wanted. It should not take more than a day to get that literally in my hands at my front door, right? We hate waiting. And so much of the progress in our world, technologically, is about diminishing our need to wait. How fast can we send communication, get directions, share pictures, look up information? It's all done instantly. We hate waiting. Waiting feels pointless. It feels like a waste of time. It feels tedious and boring and dull. And so we distract ourselves from waiting, scrolling through social media as we wait in line at the grocery store, playing that another game of Candy Crush while waiting for the water to boil, right? But waiting is a part of life. It's a part of the spiritual life, and it's a part of the Christian life. And waiting is part of the Advent and Christmas story. In fact, it's kind of at the heart of the Advent and Christmas story. This morning we find Zechariah in our text, an ordinary priest living a rather ordinary life and story. He and his wife, Elizabeth, have had a difficult time getting pregnant. She's advanced in age, long past hoping that maybe this will be the year that it will happen for them. 
she's been carrying that, that gnawing sense of hurt that she'll never have children for more than a few years. It's been several, perhaps even decades for her. And they were both righteous before God. They lived blamelessly before God, keeping and maintaining all the commandments that they were taught to keep. And they had prayed, these righteous, blameless, holy people had prayed for a child, I imagine, for years. Aren't these the type of parents that God should be blessing with children? Aren't these the kinds of people that you would anticipate and hope that God would bless with children? Holy, righteous, blameless kinds of people. And yet, they agonized and agonized for years. Elizabeth was likely blamed in her world and looked down upon for her inability to have children. Zechariah was not going to have a son to pass his name on in the generations to come. And then there's this miracle that takes place where the angel Gabriel meets Zechariah and delivers this tremendous news, that thing that you've been waiting for, that prayer that you've been asking. It's going to be granted. But you've got to wait some more. You've got to wait nine months before you're going to be able to meet your son John. And the promise that was delivered to Zechariah about his son's ministry is going to take another 30 years to come to fruition. You're going to have to wait to see that the forerunner of the Messiah that's promised to you is actually going to happen here. It's going to take decades before you see this promise. And even after John the Baptist will have announced Jesus as the Messiah, he will have his doubts about who Jesus is, curiously wondering in his own waiting in a prison cell. If Jesus was the Christ, are you the one that I said that you were? <laughs> are you the one that we've all been waiting for? Because it doesn't feel like it in the midst of my waiting. How about you? Are you waiting for a miracle? Are you waiting for God to show up and do something spectacular? Have you been waiting for years, praying the same decades-long prayer? almost to the point where you just kind of do it out of habit rather than a real sense of hope and anticipation that it could come to fruition? Have you found yourself right where you thought God was going to have you and was leading you only to wonder if you had misheard something along the way? This isn't how this was supposed to play out, Lord. If that's you, you don't just find yourself in your own story, you find yourself in the Advent story. You find yourself in the Christmas story you find yourself waiting for God to be God with you. And the question that we ought to bring to our text this morning, or perhaps even to the way that we approach the Christian life, is because waiting is such a, a matter-of-fact thing about life and about the Christian life, about Jesus' Jesus's life and the story that he's telling and trying to tell in our lives, how are we to wait without it feeling like a waste of time, without it feeling pointless or boring or tedious or dull, how are we as Christian people to wait? Because how we wait matters. I love the way that Don said it in that video in his story. And in our conversations as we were recording that, that video, he shared with me the other day um, how the way that he waited dramatically shifted the way that he was experiencing his life and the events that were occurring in it. That there was a time when, when he was just waiting for the bad news. 
waiting for the bad test result, waiting for things to decline, waiting for things to get worse, and it created this sense of of anxiousness and stress. It, It diminished the sense of hope. And then a shift came when he began to have hope. When he had this sense that that though he'd still be waiting, that though the realities of his situation were still very much present, he could be waiting for good news. He could be waiting for the good test result. He could be waiting for healing. He could be waiting for restoration. He could be waiting for new life. And this dramatically shifts the way that we experience our lives, how we wait. And honestly, That insight is such a gift to me, and I hope it is to you as well. It's one that I'll carry, thank you, Don, for years to come. How we wait matters. What are you waiting for? Because the truth of the matter is that we as Christian people, we as as people who've received the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, do not we have the, the best kind of news to anticipate and hope for despite our circumstances? The thing that we are waiting for The thing that we discover in Christmas is that God is with us. That God is active in the midst of a hurting and broken world. That God will heal all things. That God will restore all things. That God will save all things. And waiting for this kind of good news. Waiting for it to burst into our lives and into the world dramatically shapes the way that we live in this life. It gives us and creates within us a real sense of hope and we become a people of true anticipated hope. And the thing that that does for us when we're actually waiting on the good news of Jesus, when we realize that every moment is pregnant with the possibility of healing and restoration and transformation is that it it transforms our waiting from just waiting. It transforms our waiting into witnessing. In the book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, which I think I've recommended this before, I would again recommend it to everybody to read. It's accessible, it's not overly academic or anything, even though it sounds really fancy. The author, Alan Kreider, he he tries to identify why the church grew so rapidly in the first three centuries of its existence. Like how did it go from this persecuted, sort of off the beaten path religion that nobody really cared about and in fact was actively persecuting into the empire stated religion? How did that happen? How's that possible? And he notes that that in the first three centuries of the church's existence, that there wasn't a lot of emphasis on sharing the gospel and sermons that we have from that time period. Their worship services weren't the thing that everybody was inviting their friends to. Hey, if we just have the right music, then maybe people will come to know Jesus, right? There was no like emphasis on the, the right type of charismatic personality from the preacher or whatever it was. There wasn't this real emphasis on small groups. There wasn't this real sort of in, intentional, like we got to get young families and we got to get people to come to church and if they bring their kids, then this thing will go, really. In fact, it's interesting that during the persecution in the first three centuries of the church's existence, Christian worship services weren't even available for visitors to attend. They're like, you cannot participate in this thing at all because just back off. We, we don't know if we can trust you or not. And despite that, despite the hardship, despite the persecution, despite the fact that there was no real strategy, the church grew and people were saved 
And then the church grew some more and more people were saved and the church grew some more and people were saved. How, how did that happen? In Kreider, in his book, he notes that there was a single unique virtue that Christian leaders wrote about and taught prominently within the early church. And that virtue was patience. Patient faithfulness in the midst of persecution. Patient faithfulness in the midst of marginalization. Patient faithfulness in the face of violence. Patient faithfulness in the midst of hardship. Patience. How do we wait? We wait patiently upon the Lord. I think that's in there somewhere. See, there's something compelling about the Christian witness when people are unflinching in their faith despite their circumstances. There's something really attractive about a faith that is unwavering in its commitment despite the challenge and difficulties that you were experiencing. Like when you really see somebody persevering in the face of something, isn't there something compelling? Like when you hear Don's story, isn't there something that sort of moves you and says, how do you have faith in the midst of all of that? In fact, how did you even move towards faith in the midst of all of that? There's something that draws you in because there's an authenticity and a realness to it all. See, Christian hope, church, is embodied through patient faithfulness in our waiting. Patient faithfulness in the face of sickness, in the face of struggle, in the face of difficulty, in the face of fruitlessness. Waiting becomes our best witness when we patiently wait for God to show up and heal. And so I ask you again this morning, what are you waiting for this Advent season? Are you waiting for direction? Where's God gonna lead you? What's God doing? Are you waiting for healing? Are you waiting for some form of reconciliation? You have relationships that are challenging and difficult and you don't know how these things are gonna work themselves out and you find yourself in the midst of Thanksgiving and Christmas and you're gonna have to see these people and you're like, what? I don't wanna see these people. Are you waiting for forgiveness? Are you waiting for peace? What is it that you are waiting for? And sometimes when we find ourselves in these kinds of situations, our whole life can be consumed about that thing, pursuing reconciliation, pursuing these types of activities. But the question perhaps I, I want you to ponder this morning is how is it that you can be faithful in your waiting to Jesus? How is it that you might be patiently faithful in the midst of your waiting? Perhaps that thing, perhaps that injury, perhaps that, that difficulty, perhaps that challenge isn't the most important thing to consume your mind. How might you continue to serve Jesus in the midst of your waiting? How is it that you might encourage another person in the midst of your waiting? How is it that you might find yourself being generous in the midst of your waiting for God's provision? How is it that you might sacrifice yourself while you feel like you have nothing left to give? How is it that you might love in the midst of this really difficult season when the last thing you wanna do is love? You just want to curl up into a ball and just surrender and give up. Jesus still calls you to faithfulness, patient faithfulness in the midst of your waiting. 
this line from the song, Oh Holy Night, has been in the back of my mind for several days now, almost a week, because I feel like it, it summarizes so much of how I feel about the world in my life right now. There's that line, a weary world rejoices. And there's this sense that in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of our waiting for God to show up, it's still possible to rejoice because of the thing that we wait for. See, I wonder, church, how might our patient faithfulness in the midst of our waiting be a source of hope in our world? Uh, Imagine, (laughs) this is hard to imagine in the world that we live in, imagine that in the midst of all of the animosity and divisiveness that we are experiencing in the world, there was a community of people that somehow were binding together enemies. Imagine in a world where there was so much fear and anxiety about the future of things. I was talking to somebody the other day. They were like, what kind of world are we going to hand off to your kids? I don't know, but I, I know that God's got the whole world in his hands. So it's okay. How does that attitude reshape and bear witness to a different reality and different hopefulness that the world can cling to in the the time of, of great anxiety and difficulty that we are experiencing? How might our waiting faithfully before God be a beacon of hope for our community and the world? Perhaps this little light of ours might shine in the midst of darkness. And though Advent Church is a season in the calendar year. It reminds us the whole of life is a time of waiting for God's return. Right? May our patient, faithful waiting to be the instrument by which God uses to draw the world toward himself actually bear witness to that fact. May it be so in our church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.